Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. Today's guest is Jeremy Moyle. Jeremy studied archaeology at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand. He is currently a master's student in the Department of Folklore at Memorial University, doing his MA on the Victorian and Edwardian vernacular architecture of Dunedin. Welcome to the show. Hi there. I'm delighted you're here. You're supposed to say, I'm delighted to be yeah, here, too. I'm yeah. glad to be here. It's lovely. That's, no, the first test is over. Yeah. You failed. All right. Uh, good. So um, we're, we're going to talk about the work that you're doing, the research that you're doing it, it, back in New Zealand, because uh, you're you're leaving in uh, like six weeks or something. Yeah, yeah, to, very soon, uh, the end of October. Yeah. So how did you end up here? Maybe we'll start with there. How did you end up in St. John's? Well... I had worked in uh, Dunedin as an archaeologist after I finished my degree for a couple of years, and I didn't really know what I was going to do. But while I was there, part of the work that I was doing involved recording a lot of buildings. I hadn't actually ever done any uh, any sort of work looking into buildings while I was doing my degree. But anyway, uh, doing this archaeological work, I became absolutely fascinated with the I don't know, just sort of the stories that you could get um, out of these buildings that you're looking at, because unlike shall we say, orthodox archaeology, there's a lot to work with, right? Um, yeah. You're dealing with sort of what felt like far more of a living history. Um, and I don't really have that much of an imagination, you know, so it's much easier to work with, <laughs> with something that's still yeah, around. You can still see it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, I wanted to do my master's. I decided because of that, that I wanted to do my master's looking at buildings, and I had no idea where to go. And as one does, I just uh, scoped around on the internet, tried to find a few places, and I initially looked into the archaeology department at Munn because I'd had it recommended to me by multiple people um, as being a really good place to go. And after talking with a professor there for a while, he put me on to Gerald Potius over at the folklore department, who is, was described to me as an expert of, archeo- uh, sorry, of architecture. And the rest is history, really. Um, it just worked out, and here I am. It's, <laughs> it's been great. It's very funny, because I, I went through a very similar process. You know, I had done I had done uh, undergraduate in, in archaeology in Ontario, and and I was looking around for a place mm. uh, a place to do to do the MA, and and they do have a very good historical archaeology program here, and, and it was the same thing. You know, I had I had conversations with them, and I had actually applied to the archaeology program, and mm. and they were like, you know, you should really you should really mm. go into to folklore, and 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 Jerry Potius was my my advisor as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so you ended up here, and you did the you did the field school in uh, Change, Change Islands. Yes, Change Islands, Change twenty fifteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and but your your research is really based then back in in, in New Zealand. Yes, and yeah. and so can you can you kind of put the the place in a bit of geographic and historical context for us? Okay, so the town. Well, I guess first of all, New Zealand. For those of you who aren't um, too familiar with where it is. It's uh, very far south, very far away from Newfoundland, um, just to the to the southeast of Australia. Um, and to get a sense of how <laughs> relatively remote it is, uh, it takes as long to fly from Singapore to Europe as it takes from, to fly from Singapore to New Zealand. Oh, wow. So it's, it's a lot further away than people think it is. Yeah, wow. Um, so yes, so it's relatively isolated. Dunedin, the town that I'm looking at specifically, <laughs> is um, towards the south of the island. It's the southernmost city. Um, and of course, it's the southern hemisphere, so that means it's one of the colder places that you can be. Um, and it was originally founded um, as a European settlement anyway uh, in the mid-19th century. So it was designed as a planned settlement for um, specifically Scottish Presbyterian settlers. Uh, and it sort of continued that growing that way um, very slowly, it was just a small little village throughout the 1850s, 
but then in 1860 gold was discovered nearby and so the whole town just exploded and it became the largest city in New Zealand in the 19th century and there were some very angry Presbyterians around, <laughs> yeah. I think. All those um, Presbyterians were hoping for a nice peaceful existence. Yeah, exactly. They're, sort of, they're, they're building the God's kingdom on earth didn't really go particularly well after <laughs> yeah. that, I think. I bet they weren't impressed with all the saloons no, that opened yeah, up and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Continuous fires and brothels and all the sorts of joyful <laughs> things that go with gold rushes. No, I suppose there's good there's good opportunities for salvation there yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's very true. <laughs> but yeah, so so um, it became uh, New Zealand's largest city during the 19th century, and um, whole bunch of uh, obviously you've got an exploding population. You've got lots of houses being built there. Um, lots of mills are being opened. There's pretty good historical records for looking at it because it was such a big and prominent city um, during that period. And also, I just got a personal connection with it, so it was something I was really interested in looking at. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, describe the the kind of the layout of the city. Then, you know, like uh, for people who are familiar yeah, with yeah. St. John's, you know, it's a harbor city. How how is the city similar or different? Well, <laughs> very similar. Um, when I first came here, actually, I I laughed because, or well, before I came here, rather, I was looking at tourist videos that were advertising St. John's, and they said take a walk down George Street and go take a look from Signal Hill, and so. Um, after watching these videos, I then went to Dunedin and took a walk down George Street, and then I walked <laughs> up the top of Signal Hill and I took a look down at the harbour. So Dunedin, Dunedin's very much like St John's. It's a harbour city. Um, it's quite hilly. There's uh, a little small centre of town that's down on um, a sort of little alluvial plain um, just in front of the harbour, but a lot of the city just sort of uh, snakes its way over the hills all around. Um, so yeah, it's. Imagine St. John's in the south, and it's about the same size as St. John's, both um, historically and contemporary, like contemporaneously, if that's the correct word. Um, yeah. So. And so when when the when the Scots first arrived, 1850s, mm. they had a plan. They had a vision for the way the city was going to be laid out, which is which is different, I guess. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. so oh, sorry. They um. Yeah, they came um, with the plan in mind. They laid out this gridiron um, on the flat parts of the city and also, incidentally, uh, tried to run some of them straight up hills as well, which made, made for some interestingly straight, uh, steep streets in some of the um, more hilly parts of the city. But uh, everything sort of progressed along planned lines. There was a little bit of um, uh, eccentric things that went on when the gold rush happened, obviously, but... Um, yeah, most of it was pretty planned. Yeah. So uh, you, you have this sort of 1850s then plan, uh, you know, kind of this grid grid system. Um, in St. John's, we, we have an early city here, but a lot of the buildings that we have kind of date to that late Victorian Edwardian period because we had this, this period of fires. Do, do the early buildings still survive in, in, the, in the city? Yes, they do. And I guess... I, I guess I was, um, this is another little point of distinction between St. John's and Dunedin is that the idealized urban form um, in the 19th century there was far more suburban, shall we say. Mm. So even within the city, people were still building mostly, for the most part, um, individual houses on their own little lots. There wasn't uh, really a tradition of row houses there like you would have in St. John's. Um, and so that meant that though there were fires they mainly took out sections of downtown with commercial buildings and the suburbs that sort of uh, spanned out beyond were spared so you can find a lot of really old buildings in Dunedin and also more recently uh, it was moderately economically <laughs> I'm trying to say this in a polite way uh, it wasn't 
as wealthy as other cities in Dunedin. So there wasn't the sort of rebuilding that you might find in a really big city in New Zealand like Auckland, which is the largest city there. Right. So some of those older buildings, as a result, survived. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we see that. We see that especially in rural contexts here in, in Newfoundland. The the cities that were less economically privileged are the ones that seem to have preserved their architecture mm. in, in mm. a way. The, the cities that had, uh, or the towns that had a lot of money, people could afford to tear things down and build the, the modern, right? Yeah. So, so we yeah. lost a lot of buildings in, in some communities because of those factors, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like, I, I like to think about it as a heritage threshold. If it's depressed for long enough that the buildings become fashionable again, right. then, <laughs> then, you, then you're good. So uh, what about building materials? What, what, were, what were the earliest buildings, those 1850s, those, those 19th century buildings, the second half of the 19th century, what were they What were they made out of? They're predominantly timber. And much like um, America and Canada, there was a pretty good supply of timber to be had, and it was just the cheapest material by far. And there's certainly, while people did still like to import slate every now and then, it was just exponentially more expensive than working with local things. So I would say over 90% of the buildings, domestic buildings, would be built of timber. Um, it's sort of interesting because you can tell some of the early um, conversations that people had about buildings in Dunedin, they always talk about these timber buildings as a sort of temporary situation. They always expected that in the future they'd be going on to build nice stone, solid, more um, uh, substantial and enduring buildings, but that just never came about because the timber was far cheaper and it worked pretty well, as you've seen, as we've seen in North America. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I know you're kind of looking at is, is uh, in terms of the materials, uh, and one thing that I think is very different from what we have here, you, you mentioned a lot of um, like corrugated iron roofs and things mm. on some of these kind of Vic- late Victorian structures, mm. which is something that we really didn't see a lot of in, in Newfoundland, but it was very clearly something that was happening happening there. Yeah, and so I, it's interesting you bring that up because I, uh, because I'm a total nerd about this type of stuff, looked up tar shingles this morning because I was confused about why they had become so popular here and just never really caught on in New Zealand. And I think it's just a climate thing. Mm. So people really embraced um, corrugated iron roofing, amongst other things, uh, because it was seen as this like um, light, cheap, high-tech material that they could use to quickly roof their buildings. And they didn't need to worry about incredibly st- strong storms or winters where you're going to be dropping well below zero. Um, sort of to the detriment that meant that people were far too overly uh, confident about the temperatures that they're going to be dealing with because it can get pretty cold in Dunedin. And so um, if you speak to any student who's gone to university there, there'll have been some very, very cold winters in uninsulated houses with no sheeting or, <laughs> yeah. or uh, very drafty situations. Yeah. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about uh, style uh, as well uh, and, and maybe the progression of style in, in these houses? What, what were people looking at and, and how were they building buildings? Yeah, well, the earliest settlement there, um, we're talking about really basic stuff. So the the first settlers arrived and there was it was a totally alien environment for them. There was no sort of familiar European infrastructure. And so they had to build uh, just incredibly basic structures with what they had on hand. So we're talking about people cutting down woods, just um, building well, what, what might be familiar to people as Newfoundland tilts, just sort of vertical posts uh, put into the ground and roof with some thatch that they could get from um, rushes from the local swamp or something like that. But that was, again, cast as a very temporary solution. So um, 
following that, a lot of mills were established quite quickly. People built really basic um, houses with weatherboards, things that you might be familiar to see around here, salt block, little salt box cottages. But then as things went on and the mills developed in Dunedin, all of a sudden people started to go for far more complex designs. Um, people really embraced lots of uh, ornamental features. So I don't know if, if um, people are familiar with the sort of, or what's described as gingerbread in the United States, or even some of the more ornamental things that you might see around Newfoundland. Lots of brackets, um, people, a lot of houses had verandas, so they'd decorate them with really, really ornate cast iron freezers or timber freezers um, carved with fret saws, really ornate stuff like that. Um, and where the earliest houses were just simple salt box forms, just, a, just an oblong, people started to be able to take the cheaper materials and build more complex forms with them as well. Because previously it might have, you might have cut all your lumber with hand and it would have cost quite a lot of money because you've got to employ a lot of labor for that. But as the, um, as the mills built up in New Zealand and, and technology made things cheaper, people were able to build far more complex houses over time. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, we, we sometimes look at you know, a city like St. John's, and we say, oh, you know, it's, it's quaint and old-fashioned. But it, in its time, it was a, it was a very, very modern mm. city. And, and I always kind of argue that Newfoundland builders were, were modernist in a way. Like, they, they always wanted to, to utilize the most recent technology. Mm. They, they liked keeping uh, up to date in terms of architectural styles, you know. So, mm. so we had this building after uh, the city after the Great Fire in St. John's in 1892, a, a city that was really kind of at the, it would have been one of the most modern cities mm. in, in North America in a way. Mm. And we think of it now as an old fashioned city, but, you know, people were kind of looking at this new style and, and really building to that, like mm. building to that, that kind of threshold of taste. Yeah. Really, you know? Yeah. And I think like that, the perspective of place like St. John's is looking old-fashioned. I think it's created by the rise or the rise in importance of modernism in the 20th century. So people just all of a sudden totally rejected the ornateness of these these Victorian buildings. And because of that, because it sort of got cast as ugly, built, ugly architecture, um, people forgot how incredibly cutting edge not only the appearance was, but also just the... the um, how can you describe it? The sort of symbolism inherent in these these details that just would have been totally unavailable to people previously. Yeah. So because you have this new technology coming coming along, people all of a sudden can afford these incredibly ornate things that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, that might be perhaps a bit extreme, but <laughs> but things things that have been very expensive and the domain of the only the very wealthy. Yeah. I you know, and, and we talk about this idea of like high tech materials like mm. corrugated iron mm. and cast iron. You know, we that's something that we we really didn't see a lot of in St. John's architecturally. You know, that that use of cast iron architecturally is something that's very rare here. Mm. Um, you know, I, I know one example that local people might be familiar with is the old um, uh, the old orphanage at Belvedere, which just burnt er earlier this year, and it had it has these beautiful uh, cast iron kind of window uh, window moldings. Mm. You know, we don't we didn't see a lot of that here, but it was very clearly something that was happening in the late Victorian period. There was mm. this this kind of very Victorian idea that you could you you could still be beautiful and yet use the most modern technology at the mm. same time. Mm. Yeah, and I mean part of part of. Um part of the appeal of cast iron was that ability to it was specifically marketed as having that ability to really cheaply um, present a very complex 
uh, design and that was regarded as quote unquote taste at the time and so you have uh, advertisements that say all of a sudden you can have the most tasteful window arches for a low low price and that's that's the sort of essential Victorian building material package um, that you'll see around sort of the late 19th century after the rise of these industrial techniques. Uh, so were there were there iron foundries like in in the community? Yeah, yeah, yeah there were. Um, though, yeah, it was one of the you can see in the newspaper articles at the time, and this is something that I've been looking into quite closely is the rise of these local industries that people are very 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 interested in what's going on. So more so than today, people are interested not only in the industries being set up as some sort of abstracted uh, development that's happening, they want to know exactly what these things are doing. So you have really long newspaper articles that will go into detail about exactly how they'll be producing all of these um, different items, not only architectural things but also just random consumables. Um, they'll have the layout of the factory, they'll talk. They'll outline the iron founding process. I find it sort of quite unbelievable today because it to me reads as a really dry description of some sort of factory but clearly there was a market for this type of things you see it happening again and again and again in newspapers so the people who are coming out there um often they were quite practical people they're described as mechanics and so that means um iron founders carpenters anyone who sort of does a technical trade they were the ones who New Zealand was marketed to as a colony. And so you have this body of people who are going out there and they're really interested in these new technologies. Um, and yeah, so it sort of heightens the appeal of these ornate buildings, I'd say. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned a couple of times here the newspaper advertisements, newspaper articles. So how are you doing your research? Can you talk a little bit about the, the research process that you're following? Okay, so uh, the, the research I'm doing is, I guess you could sort of divide it into two parts. Um, the first is the historical context, and the second is um, a building survey. And so the historical context is mostly what I've been talking about so far in terms of dealing with um, historical documents, essentially. Primarily newspapers. New Zealand has a really good digitized set of newspapers where you can uh, punch in a word that you're looking for and it will scan the um, every single newspaper since 1860 and pull out that single word. So if you want to find corrugated iron every 14,000 references to corrugated iron there for you. <laughs> yes, yeah. But as well as that, there's a there's a lot of miscellaneous local documents that you can draw upon, um, like builders' contracts or uh, catalogues from factories or um, diaries of people who have diaries of builders, things like that. And so that, together with secondary sources that have surveyed other things from around New Zealand, helps you build up the social context. And secondly... Um, I've been going out and actually looking at the buildings themselves because I'm interested in sort of seeing how the styles change over time and the significance of it. And so that, um, for me, is specifically involved looking at historical photographs because obviously when you're dealing with houses, um, things change over time and especially ornamental things, things that would have defined the style of the time, they're really easy to remove because it's just a bracket that you'll pull off. And especially with the... um, the development of modernism and sort of the the preference that people developed in the 20th century for really plain, um, simple-looking structures, a lot of people took off those brackets. And so because of that, I've been focusing specifically on historical photographs that I can be confident um, are well-dated and show me the house as it was originally built. And so I've gone through and looked at those historical photographs and compared them all together and identified trends over time and see how certain styles of houses relate to certain groups of people. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this photographic uh, material, is is this stuff that's 
already been digitized? Is this stuff that exists in uh, online, or, or are you having to go to the archives locally and, and source this material? Both. Um, there has been a big push recently um, in digitizing photographs in New Zealand, and that's been absolutely amazing, um, especially the Museum of New Zealand has uh, digitized a lot of large format um, photographs, so you can zoom in to an incredible degree and sort of see the the smile on the face of the guy standing next to the building who might just be a tiny dot in the original print um, or a print of the photograph rather but that said there's still a lot of photographs that are just still locked in um, in uh, archival collections so I spent a lot of time going through archives and just uh, rifling through boxes trying to find photographs of houses and it takes a long time but there's there's a lot of historical photography out there it's the one thing that I realize is that it's an incredible resource that is moderately inaccessible because it requires a lot of time to actually go through all these th- go through all these things but there's there's a lot of really interesting information buried in there i'd say yeah so what kind of sample are you looking at in terms of buildings like what h- how many structures are you looking at or what are you looking at a neighborhood or are you looking at a cross section um i'm specifically looking at uh the what constitutes the city of dunedin today um and so far i managed to pull out 108 houses that's my sample um, and so that's a mixture of both personal houses and rental properties that's about half and half and so um, in an ideal world I'd have more but it seems to work pretty well as a sample um, so and are far. you looking specifically at residential properties yeah residential properties just because um, commercial properties is a whole nother ball game really and so what's the what's the date range that you're looking uh, at? specifically I'm focusing on 1870 from uh, sorry from 1870 to 1910 and I chose that date, those dates, just because that's when um, the records in Dunedin become far clearer. Uh, as I said before, um, there was a gold rush, and that covered primarily the period of the 1860s. And while that's, it's a really interesting period of Dunedin's history, but the the property records um, that I have to work with to try and identify the dates of these houses, they're not very good for that period. Um, and also the rates records for the local council all have vanished, as historical records tend to do. Mm-hmm. I know one of the things you're also looking at is class and, mm. and the way that class uh, is reflected in these buildings. And and that sometimes, you know, people are building in a very similar style across classes. So that, that that's one of the things that you're finding. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was, that was sort of the most interesting thing, right? Because... Uh, clearly, people associate class with buildings. It's sort of one of those the, a really basic assumptions. There's, there's a reason why we refer to the landed gentry in England um, or associate people with big stately houses like Downton Abbey. And so I assumed that there was just going to be this really clear, like, oh, yeah, people have different tastes and different class. Um, and it was sort of true to, an, true to an extent, right? So unsurprisingly, there were really big differences in the sizes um, of houses owned by rich people and poor people um, and the materials that can that they were made out of. So poor people lived in wooden houses and they had uh, corrugated iron roofs because they were cheap, whereas the rich people lived in stone houses and they had slate roofs which were imported, as I said before, very expensive. But what's particularly interesting is that the aside from the materials, the actual um, style of the house was very, very similar. So you'll see... Um, some company manager will build a two-story house with a projecting gable, um, so like a roof that points, uh, pokes out from the front, and will have a veranda and it has some decoration. And then you'll see the exact same thing in a worker's cottage. It will have a projecting gable, a roof po- poking out the front, veranda with some decoration, but just on a far smaller scale. And so to me that says that um, it was a very similar taste. You don't have people weren't 
um, keen to differentiate themselves in, in that sense or there wasn't too much distance between the wealthier people and the poorer people in the town and that sort of matches with what I came across looking up the social background it's that um, when they were trying to get people to come out to New Zealand they marketed it as a more egalitarian place they, people were trying to get there to escape from the social uh, barriers that existed within England so obviously if you're a working class person in England it's very very difficult to go and buy property or something like that whereas in New Zealand there's um, far more opportunity. It's like America. There's cast as this land of opportunity where you could start your own business and and, and make something of yourself. Um, and so I think because of that constant egalitarian ethos, you didn't really have um, too much. You either didn't have much of a desire to distinguish um, for people to distinguish themselves between different classes, or it was sort of frowned upon and so the popular way of doing things was this egalitarian um, style within the architecture. Mm. Do, do you see a change in, in architectural styles over time? Uh, you, you talk a lot about this kind of uh, bracketed style which we see in mm. North America that kind of comes out of that Italianate kind of style with the, the heavy eaves bracket, the Victorian bracketed look. Did things like um, like the Queen Anne style or Second Empire style, did they start to have an impact at the end of your study? Or? Um, yes and no, only only to a small degree. And the, the time frame that I've taken, or the sort of end date I've actually chosen because you start to see quite a big shift um, as more bondist impulses start coming in from that time. Um, so I've, I've specifically chosen to focus on this, this particular bracketed style. And I don't think, um, or one thing that I've sort of noticed is that you don't really have identifiable architectural styles like Queen Anne or, um, or Beaux-Arts Beaux or something like that come in. It's, it's more you might see a, a feature that might be typical of a Queen Anne or something pop up, like a particular sort of gable that you might recognize as being Queen Anne, but there's no way you could describe that house as a Queen Anne style house. It's more of this sort of, this really ornate vernacular style that then changes into something a bit simpler as time goes on. And is there something that is kind of typically Dunedin? Like, is there something that happens there that doesn't happen in other in other communities? Yeah, um, there... So all throughout New Zealand, these these Victorian houses, most like the the ideal Victorian house will be called a New Zealand villa, and this is this is sort of what I was describing before. You'll have um, a square plan with a hall down the middle, and there'll be a projecting gable. Part of the roof will pop out. There might be a veranda, um, some ornament on the front, some sort of friezes or brackets or something like that. But what you see in Dunedin is in the north you might where in the north you might have a veranda going across from the gable in Dunedin you'll have another bay window popped um, next to it so you'll have two twinned bay windows next to the door and that is just because it's so damn cold there <laughs> that you don't want to be spending time outside on the veranda so people just thought they'd go for another projecting gable and uh, have a bay window there so people could live inside yeah do you have a favorite building um oh that's a good question oh I love all my buildings, Dale. <laughs> it's like yeah. asking who's your favorite yeah, child exactly. of a parent. Yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't answer that. No, I can't think of one else. So I'm you're you're heading back. You're heading back uh, soon, and the plan is to to do a bit more research, do a bit more writing. What, what yeah, I've just got to. I I'm sort of um, uh, pump or fleshing out the end of my thesis with some stories relating to very specific people within Dunedin, just to give it a bit more of a human character and come down from the ten thousand mile view. Um, 
and so yeah i'll be doing a couple or a few months more research once once i get back in new zealand but hopefully it should be done soon (laughs) and then what's your do you have a long-term goal what would you like to do next um that's a good question i don't know something something to do with um heritage in new zealand perhaps work as an archaeologist for a little bit longer um is, I don't know, whatever it, the world brings me. Is there an active kind of heritage conservation yes, movement in New yes, Zealand? No, there's yeah. a really um, big heritage conservation movement there at the moment. And it's growing in strength all the time as well. As, as the country gets older, people become more and more interested in their history, I'd say. So, yeah. Great. Well, thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a co-production of CHMR Radio 93.5, and the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Andrea McGuire. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.